Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Drunken Cultured. I, again, I'm going to be prefacing this episode with a bit of a disclaimer. We in the Pacific Northwest are going through the hottest recorded heat wave in history. We reach temperatures of like 110 degrees Fahrenheit, like 45 degrees Celsius. So you may be hearing some humming in the background because we have to have an air conditioner and fan on full blast. Sorry if that's annoying. I did do my best to try and mitigate some of that humming, but this is where we are right now. So I hope that you can get past it and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Drunk and Cultured. Russ is joining us again today, and we'll be talking about one of the most spectacular buildings that I've ever had the pleasure of being inside, on top of, in the vicinity of, and that is the Basilica Cathedral Metropolitan di Santa Maria Nascente, or as it's more commonly referred to, the Milan Duomo. It is a mouthful to say, but it is quite something to look at. It's pretty spectacular. But before we get started, we're going to have a quick aperitivo. And in Milan, the aperitivo, or aperitif, is not only a tradition, but an art. An aperitivo is a drink and light meal that takes place at the end of a workday, kind of like our happy hour, but better, more ingrained in their culture than just buddies meeting up for beer and mott sticks. It's enjoyed pretty much everywhere in Italy. It's not just a Milanese thing. And the further south you go, sometimes it's not seen as a proper aperitivo in the sense that the bar is serving a buffet, but all regions do offer some sort of their version of an aperitivo. And not to say that there's anything wrong with mozzarella sticks. (laughs) Mozzarella sticks are well enjoyed. So it started in the Lombardy region, and I've seen some things say that it started in Milan proper. Some say that it started in Turin in the late 1700s. Either way, it's an old AF tradition. And the word aperitivi comes from the Latin word for opener. It's a tradition I can get behind. (laughs) It's a good one. (laughs) An aperitivo is a pre-drink meal meant to whet your appetite. Or a pre-meal drink? That (laughs) wet-ass appetite. A pre-dinner drink and meal meant to whet your appetite. Meant to get y'all wet. <laughs> oh, so dumb. <laughs> this may have been an old-timey marketing ploy, actually. A man named Antonio Benedetto Carpano created one of the first types of vermouth in Turin in 1786. And he said that this special combination of fortified white wine Various herbs and spices stimulated the appetite. Gonna get everyone's appetite wet. <laughs> Just stimulating them orally. And it was more suitable at this time for ladies to drink aperitivo, white wine, either than a red wine. A lot of restaurants and bars at this time took to this as kind of their new meal, like new service in between lunch and dinner. Usually... Smart. Mm-hmm. The madman of the 1700s. <clears throat> Gotta sell more booze. Exactly. Give him a little something to nibble on, too. Just toss this medicine in a cup with some soda water. Gotta have him quit puking around the bar. <laughs> so usually an aperitivo. To drink, they'll serve cocktails mixed with Campari, Aperol, Vermouth, other medicine-y kind of spirits mixed with Prosecco, white wine, or soda water. 
They're normally light on alcohol and bitter on taste, and they pair perfectly with salty snacks like cured meats or olives, mm. things like that. Right. We're having an Aperol spritz, and from everything that I've read, you should stick with the what they call the three-two-one rule of a spritz. So three ounces of your Prosecco, Prosecco or sparkling wine, two ounces of your liqueur, so for us we're using Aperol, and one ounce of club soda or sparkling water. Three, two, one, down the hatch. <laughs> what do you think? That is refreshing, especially on a day like today. Not too bitter? No, no. No, I'm really enjoying this. Good. So a spritz is an Amaro, which is the type of liqueur Aperol Campari or Sinar are, and mixed with sparkling wine. If you like bitter, Sinar is the most. It's actually made from artichokes. I'm not really sure what part, but the flavor is extracted from artichokes. Not anchovies, right? Not anchovies. Did <laughs> I say be anchovies before? I think so. Oh. <laughs> not anchovies, artichokes. <laughs> Campari, it's in between, and then Aperol would be the sweetest of the Amaros. Explains why I'm enjoying this Aperol spritz. Because it's on um, the sweeter side? Yes, yeah, not a fan of bitter as you know dear yes and the white or the prosecco that we used is called the rufino and it is on the drier side this is one that i can i enjoy this prosecco i could have a glass or two of it not being a huge fan of prosecco prosecco is not my first choice no of sparkling wines i find they're often on the sweeter side of sparkling wines with cava kind of being in the middle and then champagne is you know the king for aperitivos spritzes are pretty much every everywhere they became really popular over here in north america for a while i know around 2017 2018 the new york times actually published an article written by rebecca pepler entitled the aperol spritz is not a good drink so not enjoyed by everybody apparently (laughs) she states that the popular instagram friendly aperitif drinks are like a Capri Sun after soccer practice on a hot day but not in a good way what's wrong with that don't like soccer practice lady (laughs) (laughs) I guess the syrupy and the sweetness of it I can kind of get if you have had an Aperol spritz that is not made well I can understand really not liking them this is one of the better ones I've had and I do kind of deviate a little bit from the three, two, one rule. I do almost like a three, two, two rule. I like a little bit more club soda or sparkling water in uh, mine, especially. You probably knew I'd like that as well. Yeah, I top it off a little bit more, but that's just my personal preference. We are also drinking it at home. It's not likely gonna get watered down into a twenty dollar right. glass of garbage. And like one glass of these is is plenty and i remember um when we were on one of our walks in florence and we got a bite to eat and our aperol spritzes i was like i don't want to finish this i we i feel like we could have probably just split one yeah they're definitely not refreshing it's not going to be a drink that you're you know pounding you're not having aperol spritz saturdays probably no 
But it's At nice. At least don't invite me. <laughs> it's nice for something different. You know, once you buy a bottle of Aperol, again, chances are unless you're having a party or you're pounding back the spritzes, it'll last you a while too. So it's a good, a good thing to have on stock on your bar just for something different on a hot day. But I, I do kind of understand what she's saying. Like, it is a little bit like alcoholic marmalade. So if it's not made right, if you order mm. it from a bar and they're using the cheaper, sweeter... Prosecco, it could definitely taste like medicine. I, I kind of get that, the syrupy flavor. But I honestly think that it's it's a drink that needs to be ordered in the right circumstances. Yeah, it needs to be like maybe one of their, something that they have on the menu or something like they, that they advertise. But yeah, your average bar, at least here in North, North America, if you ask for that, you know, they might give it their best shot, but they're probably working with limited ingredients. And I think, you know, you want to be having something that complements it. Also, it's not as much meant as a sit down. Well, I mean, it's not really, it's a social pre-drink kind of, mm -hmm. not a lasting cocktail, if that makes sense. But I guess that's, that's the root of it. It's an opener. An opener to the rest of the drinks. Yeah. In the Duomo Square in Milan, there's actually an Aperol Terrace bar that overlooks the Duomo at the Galleria Mall. We didn't go there. It looked really cool, but it was New Year's Eve. It was cold and very busy. So I didn't want to really be sitting outside at a terrace at night after walking around all day in the cold. Mm -hmm. But to give you an idea of pricing for somewhere like this, it's a premium location. You've got the brand recognition, like it's a logo, name, brand, bar. You will be paying about 14 euro for an alcoholic cocktail. Not outrageous. I honestly expected it to be more just given the location. Right. Around 8 euro for a beer. A salad will run you about 12 euro with a plate of pasta about 14 so a little bit on the more expensive side your portions probably aren't going to be as big if you were going to travel outside of that but really in that circumstance you're kind of paying for the experience more than anything mm -hmm. and i feel i know we didn't get to go if we ever go back i maybe would like to i feel like that would be a pretty good like standard or like bar to set like it's either gonna be the best Aperol spritz you had yeah or it's it like or it might be the best Aperol spritz you've had and then you might have and find somewhere somewhere else they do it better and but I feel like that's a good Litmus like sets test. the bar yeah. yeah yeah place like that for sure and the coperta is very reasonable too also it's two euros per person so if you've never heard of a coperta this is something that they do in Italy. I don't know that I noticed it everywhere. Definitely everywhere we went in Milan, they had it. I think only one restaurant that we ate at in Florence did, and then none of the restaurants in Rome. But uh, Coperta is like a cover charge per person. It's like a seating fee, essentially. Yes, which was new to us. It was new to us. So it's not like a tip. It's essentially, it is a, it's a cover charge. And some places will charge you per table. Some places, most places charge you per person. And it's usually somewhere in the one to, I think the most expensive coperta we had was three euro 50 cents. It was $7 for our table. Yeah. And I, I could totally be making this up. I might've just seen this on one of the menus at the places we went to, but it seemed like it maxed out at six. Oh yeah. 
So I think that it was a flat rate at six or more. But yeah, like you're not wrong. It's not like it's really um, much, but just the fact that like when it first happened to us being unaware, like I didn't like being feel like I was being nickeled and dimed. I'm like, just charge me more for whatever. Like, mm-hmm. I don't care. Charge me for the bread or, yeah. or something. But I did. But then finding out that it is common and that, you know, they weren't really, you know, trying to pull the wool over my eyes. But, you know, I could I could see um, the American tax. <laughs> and like, but I could see if you if you're like a family of four and five and then there's an extra you know, you know, 10 euro 12, 10 added to, to 15 your bills. euro yeah. added to your, you know, that's, you know, depending on what currency, that's, you know, actually 20, that could be 25 bucks and to you, you know. It's usually, I think it's supposed to be stated on the menu. Most it, which places. Which it is, which it is. If yeah. you look, it was, once, once it was pointed out to us, because I made sure to look. <laughs> <laughs> most places will also have the menu outside of their restaurant for people to look at. So if, if this is something that, you know concerns you generally it it should be clearly stated and also just just to piggyback on that um like tipping is a whole different situation i know that it's not like i just from you know being from north america like i almost still feel better about myself if i leave a tip or like i don't leave like 20 percent like i would you know here or whatever but you know i'd probably give a little bit more than what your average person would give and then if you take that into account i mean the cover charge or the caperta i'm probably not saying that right is you know it's really not a big deal yeah and the rule just kind of on tipping still oh one thing i wanted to say about the coperta actually is that sometimes it's also different pricing for indoors and outdoors so they'll have like a you know, slash kind of indoor seating is X amount, outdoor seating is this mm-hmm. much. And that is sometimes is subject to change per season. So yeah. if it's more desirable to sit outside, you might be looking at a higher, higher coperta than if, it, and, if you were seated inside. And I do find of the places that would have charged the fee... I feel like we got good service. I also feel like most places that we were charged the coperta, not only did we get good service, but we also got extras. So, like, they brought around a shot of limoncello at the end of dinner Mm -hmm. at at the first place. And And even if the place didn't didn't charge it, like, I just felt that the servers, I mean, they were really good. Mm -hmm. And so I almost, that's why I felt bad not leaving them, to me, what would be a halfway decent tip. The rule that I learned in Europe for tipping is essentially whatever the coin change is brought back is like that seen as a big gesture. So if you're whatever bill comes and you give them 20 euro and you get 80 cents whatever in coins back. Right, right. but good luck doing that here. That's like spitting in their face. Yeah. But they get paid a living wage. It's actually seen as a career. It's totally different. To be, you know, like they're treated way better over there. Okay, back to TV. So Sayonar, as I mentioned, um, is the most bitter. It's flavored with artichokes. Sometimes you could also bypass all of the Amaros and you could go with something that's much sweeter, which would be a vermouth-based drink like a Negroni. 
There's also the Americano, which is made both with Campari, vermouth, and a splash of soda water. Not to be confused with the coffee. Not to be confused with the coffee, but it was apparently named after the many American customers who loved the drink so much. So it just got dubbed the Americano because all of the American tourists liked it. And it probably went up double the price. <laughs> probably. <laughs> Then there's the Martini Rosso or Blanco with vermouth and sparkling wine. The Martini uh, Spumante brand is very, very popular over there. And, of course, you could always order wine. In some places, a bottle of the house wine is actually cheaper than a bottle of water and often more refreshing if you get a white. Which, it sounds insane, but yes, and I'm, I'm for it. <laughs> Like, I would much rather spend, even if it's a little bit more, I'd rather spend, you know, eight or nine euro on a house bottle of white and toss some ice cubes in it than 14 euro on a bottle of water. Yeah. So, yeah. Just a bottle of water, not even, you know. Not even sparkling. I I guess you could always ask for ice with it. Yeah. Yeah. Just go for the wine. (laughs) And it's not like here. Like, a lot of the house bottles of wine here are basically vinegar, pure garbage, seem like they made it out of a wine kit in their basement. Well, I know I didn't leave a glass full. No, I can't (laughs) say that I did. In Italy and France, the house wines are often generally very palatable. And if it's not great, or, you know, if you're unsure, order a white, add some ice, or order a club soda. Ice pretty much saves the day with most whites. Add ice till desired. Effect achieved. Ice is always the solution with a bad white wine and a splash of sparkling water or club soda. You can just make your own little DIY spritz if it's really not a good white. But normally, or at least in my experience, I haven't really had a problem that a handful of ice can't solve in terms of house wines in Europe. Mm Mm-hmm. And then finally, historically, beer, bira, is less popular than wine, but it is still appropriate for lunch or dinner, unless you ask my nono, who loves to tell this story about when he was in Italy, in the village that his family is from, and it's a very small village in northern Italy, and it was such a hot day, he was so sweaty and so thirsty, he and my nona go into this restaurant around lunchtime, and there weren't many places open, because in some small towns, and even to this day, during the holidays, be it summer or winter, many places will shut down. So they found one of the only restaurants they could find that was open. He asked for a beer, and the guy poured him a wine. He's like, no, I want beer. And the guy basically just pushed the wine glass towards him and walked away. Like, no, you'll drink wine. Sorry. We don't do that here. We don't do that here. So that's a very small town. I'm sure it's not like that now. It was a long time ago. And there are many, well, not many, but there are famous Italian beer brands like Peroni and Moretti. People definitely do drink beer. It's Mm -hmm. just as an aperitif, it's not going to be seen as very common. And you probably wouldn't get, if there's like a drink and food special, you wouldn't get the same kind of special as you would if you were ordering a cocktail. Like many other places in the world, craft beer has been making its way onto the scene. And in Milan, particularly, they have a few beerificos. I expected them to be in the district that's called the Navili district, but they're actually more north-northeast. So if you're looking at the map, it's a lot more accessible from the different neighborhoods. Kind of over by the train station looks like where some of these uh, birificos are. 
<laughs> so if you're a tourist and craft beer is your scene, uh, might be worth checking out. We didn't, but I would love to hear about it. For aperitifs, food is not meant to replace your dinner. They'll serve you cheese, cured meats, quiche, veggies, pizza, small plates of pasta, and sometimes they'll serve you food with your aperitivo on like a per drink basis, but the traditional way to enjoy it seems to be more like a buffet setting. Uh -huh. Some younger Italians and often tourists have taken to swapping dinner for filling up on aperitif, but... Drinking and eating... <laughs> you want to make sure that you're buying enough drinks, if it's a buffet style, that you're not kind of just getting one drink and then, like, stuffing your... Like, it's not an all-you-can-eat buffet. No. no. Um, and you will normally be expected to pay as soon as you get your drink. So they'll bring your drink by, sometimes with a plate of food, or sometimes they'll just bring you a plate to take to get your own food and expect you to pay right away. At first, I thought this was kind of off-putting. I'm used to being able to run, you know, a tab and then paying that out at the end of the night. Right. It seemed annoying and cumbersome to kind of have to pay for each of my drinks. Right. But it is a busy time. It does get confusing for them with people, you know, getting up and down from their tables, sometimes intermingling tables. Sure. It just makes more sense for them. Aperitivo traditionally can be a good deal if a restaurant is actually putting on and like don't go to a bar and just expect you're gonna get an aperitivo. Right. Like they'll have right, like right. a sandwich board or something outside, some sort of signage, you know, normally advertising if they are putting on an aperitivo. And it is normally in a lot of touristy areas, it can be hard to distinguish between the places that are actually good and places that stay open because of their location, like we mentioned with the Aperitivo Terrace, yeah. or I mean the Aperol Terrace. I mean, you know, it's funny, like, you know, being on vacation, but especially in Italy where we did tons of walking, you don't really think of, like, I guess, of the energy that you burn and how just, like, yeah, a little bite to eat. Goes a long know, way. Yeah, settles, settles, settles nicely in the tummy. Yeah. Yeah, and it's normally enjoyed between six thirty and nine p.m. Dinners usually enjoyed later there. So after sightseeing and walking around, you know, on your way back to your hotel, it is nice to stop in, get a snack before you go back and get ready for dinner. And, and then, like, also to not just like not have a full meal, right? To where like you almost want to unbutton your pants or take a nap because. We felt like that after multiple dinners, like not even being able to finish our whole dinners. <laughs> but it's so good, you just can't put the fork down. Yeah. So if location and view are what matter most to you, then trying to find somewhere that you can have a front row seat of, say, the Duomo, like the Aperol Terrace, you're likely not going to care if you're paying premium prices and not having as good of food or smaller portions because that's what you're paying for is right. the view. Yeah, yeah. Great view. Oh, and also just, I mean, talking about the Aperol Spritz Lounge and how you might be paying a little bit more and it might just be kind of average food, might get a pretty kick-ass Aperol Spritz. I don't know how late a bar would be open till, no matter what time the sun goes down, like it's lit, the church is lit up really well. It's like lit. The, it, it is max lit. <laughs> so like... You can get, you know, you were able to get great shots on your camera at nighttime when yeah. it was lit up. 
and it's cool. It looks different. It looks, and it's cool. It's like looking at two different Building. churches, yeah. day and night. <laughs> day and night difference, but um, <laughs> yeah. So part of the reason why we didn't do that when we were there, we were there during Christmas. So if that is something that interests you, I personally love to travel around New Year's. That's my favorite time of the year to travel is being somewhere else at New Year's Eve. Good way to bring in the new year. It's a good way to bring in the new year for sure. And the previous year. Yeah. And I find that often a lot of the Christmas crowd starts to dissipate a little bit. That wasn't totally our experience when we were in Italy. Yeah, we got to see a lot of the, well, not the different, you know, we were in Florence and Rome and Milan and, and Venice, but... Uh, a lot of the different neighborhoods in each area would be decorated differently yeah. and beautifully. Yeah. And um, it was great. We still were able to catch the uh, Christmas market that was just right outside the Duomo. So rather than, you know, go to the Aperol Spritz Lounge, we walked around the outside of the church and we checked out the market. And, and sampled the delicious food that they have. And that's mm. so the, the Christmas markets in Europe are pretty remarkable they're not like anything that we really have here like we have i can think of uh we have markets inspired by like there's the german christmas market like they're inspired by how something like this yeah yeah amazing these markets are so they've got all their little timber huts lined on either side selling christmas decorations foods Candy, anything yeah. that you, nativity sets, you you pretty much anything that you can think of. And they celebrate the Christmas kind of season until January 6th, which is, I think it's called the Epiphany. Okay, so the Duomo Milan. The Duomo is located in the very center of the city in a big, beautiful piazza. On one side, there's the Galleria Vittoria Emmanuel II shopping mall, and it's gorgeous. Beautiful. I, I've never seen, I mean, a shopping center that is so beautiful. It's very high-end. And inside is high-end shopping for the most part. You'll find Louis Vuitton, Prada. Uh, I know Dolce & Gabbana is separate, but all of the four corner stores were you know the higher end designers it was built in 1877 and it's italy's oldest active shopping gallery it was named after victor emmanuel ii who was the first king of the kingdom in italy mm -hmm. it was designed in 1861 by architect giuseppe mignotti one fun little tidbit not about him but just about them all in the very center under the big dome there's a tile mosaic of the turin bull and it is or was thought to be a milanese tradition if you place your right heel on the bull's testicles and turn yourself around three times it'll bring you good luck so of course we had to do that obviously had to do it and when we were there, it was packed wall to wall full of people. You pretty much were just shuffling through. But there was no time I can think of other than maybe 12, 15 a.m. on New Year's Day, like right after the New Year's crowd started to mm. disperse. That's the only time that I think it was open enough. Like it wasn't 
There was always yeah, somebody on those bulls. Other balls. Yeah, that was the one time we were able to do it. Was super late. Yeah. On, and we still there was a few people like kind of like waiting in line to do it. And uh, but yeah, that was the only time that I can remember that you basically weren't like shoulder to shoulder trying to find somewhere to walk yeah. to get through that place. And we were there. I mean, you know, New Year's, Christmas time. So there was a big tree in the center that actually swore off ski decorates it was beautiful there's christmas lights and it's not yeah, it was decorated really yeah. nice yeah it's not a fully enclosed shopping center there's a roof but you can walk in from i'm gonna say the wings all of the entrances are open sure. and then yeah. the stores have doors so it's not a completely open air but you don't actually have to that's how we were able to be in there at you know, 12.31 a.m. Yeah, yeah, restaurants and a couple of bars also. Then also in the same plaza that the Duomo is in, or Piazza, is the Royal Palace or the Palazzo Real Milano. It's a three-story neoclassical palace that was the seat of the government of Milan for many years. So it's on the opposite side, well, kind of two sides of the Piazza. And it was built before the Duomo there wasn't an actual specific date, like completion date, but it was built before the Duomo and the space was originally, like the Piazza space was originally supposed to be two courtyards and they were dismantled to build the cathedral. Hmm. It's now a museum and cultural center and it shows international art exhibits. So multiple different exhibits come through every year. And then there is some, I believe, history of the Duomo in there also. It's also neat that how it's just located smack dab in the center of the city. Yeah. It looks like looking at the map, it's the bullseye, which a lot of older towns are like that, but. It really makes itself, if it wasn't already just by size and appearance and everything about it, makes itself the main attraction, really. Mm -hmm. of, it's yeah. not like where the Vatican is out on its own i mean it's its own principality but it's, it's like off the beat it's not in the center of, of yeah. rome yeah, there's not really right. one thing in the center of rome everything is a little more right so yeah the duomo di milano it's a roman catholic church and it took nearly six centuries to complete which i couldn't believe that and they have a stone in the building that I think it started in 1312 or something, it might have said, was the date on it. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's a good memory. That wasn't something that I remembered. I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure that stuck. The construction began in 1386. A little off. <laughs> the final details were completed in 1965. It's the largest church in Italy, considering that St. Peter's is technically Vatican City. It's not. So mm. St. Peter's is bigger, but it's technically not Italy. I mean, so, but it's the second largest church in Europe and the third largest in the world. It, I mean, yeah, just the size, it, it makes you feel small. Like you can't believe that you're indoors. I can't recall off the top of my head the height of the Florence Duomo. But I feel like the Duomo in Milan is the tallest church or basilica I think I've ever been in. Just height, like looking up in there 
and it being straight, at least the hall, like the tallest ceiling height without an upper gallery or anything. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not going to. It's very <clears throat> tall. The original church that stood there was called the Basilica Nova. It was completed in 355 and then an addition was built in 836. A fire damaged both of those in 1075 and it was later rebuilt as the Duomo. There's one piece that was standing or is still standing from that era and that's the octagonal baptistry which is a thing for Roman Catholic cathedrals. The Duomo in Florence has that one that's separate that right. people line up because they want to see the bronze casted doors. Mm -hmm. And that baptistry, it dates back to 355. It can still be visited, but it's underneath the cathedral. So you have to take like the basement tour, the crypt tour. And in 386, or 300, 1386, Archbishop Antonio da Saluzzo began construction on what is now the Duomo. 1386, so over a thousand years after the original was built. 355 was when like, the, the original Basilica. Oh, oh, sorry, yeah. So yeah, over a thousand years ago, they began building what we now know as the Duomo. And this happened right around the same time that the Archbishop's cousin, John Galeazzo Visconti, was coming into power in Milan. And the church was meant to be a reward to the noble classes who suffered greatly under Visconti's predecessor, Barnabo. And plus, I remember how big, like, those pillars and the, co like, columns yeah. were, like... The year prior to the groundbreaking of the church, it's 1385, Visconti faked religious conversion and ambushed Barnabo. Barnabo? <laughs> noble. Uh, right? <laughs> and Barnabo was his uncle. Wow. So he Savage. overthrew him during this religious pr procession and became the new, the new duke. I guess he was the f considered the first Duke of Milan. Just like that. Just like that. So easy. And it seems to me Visconti was kind of seen as a hero. And it seems to me that Barnabo's big thing that people didn't like about him were that he imposed high taxes. I could see why people wouldn't like that. And especially the noble nobility. So those Sforzas were like, get that guy out uh -uh, of here. Uh -uh. <laughs> <laughs> So Visconti ruled just before the dawn of the Renaissance, and he took a lot of interest in science. Science? <laughs> During his time living at the Visconti castle, he grew the collection of scientific writings in the library quite a bit. He also threatened to declare war on France over gossip about his daughter that was going around the French court. Uh-oh. <laughs> Don't talk shit about my family. We're going to war. At one point, he seized Verona, Vincenza, Piacenza, and Padua, Padua, and he controlled almost the entire valley of the Po. So he's a pretty big deal. Yeah, he's got some influence. He had dreams of uniting northern Italy as a kingdom and reviving the Lombard Empire, but in 1402, he launched an assault on Florence and Bologna. The Florentine leaders were like, nah, so they tried to rally the troops. At the time... Florentines were dealing with famine, poverty, and disease. So, like, not the best time for the government to be like, yo, time to fight for your honor. You gotta prove you're a man. <laughs> yeah, against Milan. Milan. 
Visconti beat the Florentine Bolognese army, but a few months later he succumbed to a fever and died. Oh, the fever. <laughs> Got you by the fever. So, very sad, I guess. But he wanted to follow the hot new trends, Visconti, in European architecture. So when they were building the Duomo, they hired the French chief engineer, Nicolas de Vagneventure. Dude did a good job. He was one of many, many, as we'll get through the <laughs> okay. history of it. There were a lot of architects and engineers that worked on this project. I mean, so many centuries. Yeah, dozens. <laughs> he shifted the design from more of the traditional church style that you were seeing in Italy at the time to a more French, what was called Rayonant Gothic. It was a French movement at the time which focused on larger spaces, the addition of large windows to fill the space with light. So as we kind of mm. mentioned, the height of it, that was a direct reflection of this Rayonant movement. So Visconti gave the body kind of overseeing construction of the church and design called the Fabrica del Duomo, the exclusive use of marble from this particular quarry and exempted them from taxes. They then called another French architect in from Paris, Jean Mignot, to judge and improve upon the work. And just a side note on that, Milan kind of gave me Parisian vibes. It felt very Parisy to me. I thought it was kind of just because it's a more self-sufficient city. It doesn't need tourists, so people aren't as welcoming. And they don't have that warmth that I found more common in other places in Italy that I've been. But maybe this has something to do with it, the, the French influence in the architecture. I yeah, mean, it's just sorry. church. But... I remember you saying that when we were there, just not even looking at something particularly special, but just the surrounding buildings, you were mm -hmm. saying. Yeah, I, yeah. Yeah, it has a lot more of a Parisian vibe to it than, yeah, really anywhere else in, in Italy that I've been. Work proceeded quickly initially, but once Visconti died, almost half of the cathedral was complete, but work stalled for about 78 years. So this guy was cracking the whip. Yeah. He's like, I got half of this done. We're lowering, I'm exempting everyone from taxes. <clears throat> Rich people, buy taxes. Church, no taxes. And I mean... But you gotta work hard. I, I, I not, they used whatever quarry they were using. I, they must have hauled a lot of stones. Yes. Or rock, or I don't know the proper term. Holy. Yeah. It's massive. But that eventually led to a lack of money. So an almost 80 year stall. <laughs> oh no. Was a result a of A lack that. of funding, yeah. still a modern problem as low well. Low funds, oh. we can all identify with uh, low funds. Uh, funds are low, In don't wanna catch it. <laughs> <laughs> In 1488, Leonardo da Vinci and Donato Bramante created models in a competition to decide the, to design the central cupola of the church, which is, there's like a, almost a semi-dome in a lot of, I, I think it's mostly a Roman Catholic church thing, but it's a, a semi-dome that is usually above the altar. Okay, I think I know what you're talking about. And I didn't yeah. really explain it very well, semi-dome, but that's... I'm just kind of picturing a altar in my head and I'm picturing that 
Okay. Yeah. I don't know it's what like you up. It. It's not really an archway because it's more. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Da Vinci allegedly withdrew his submission on his own. So. He's like, screw this. Yeah. <laughs> I'm over it. In 1500 to 1510, Ludovico Sforza, which is one of the noble families, they have a huge castle in walking distance from yep. the Duomo. They, he oversaw the completion of the original octagonal cupola and decorated the interior with 15 statues portraying saints, prophets, sibyls, and other figures from the Bible. And uh, you just mentioned the Sforza castle. and. I'm, I don't know if it's, they call it a museum, but they offer tours, and unfortunately we didn't get to go, but that looks like they would have a lot of things to see in there. Yeah. They were a super wealthy family. There were a few things that, I mean, we we went at a difficult time of year to see things. We also didn't spend that many days in Milan. I said for some reasons that I felt no need to go back, but kind of revisiting this, I was like, okay, I could maybe spend two more full days there. There are a few things that we didn't see that now looking back, I mm -hmm. wouldn't hate. Right, like we just saw the Sephora's castle from the outside. From the outside. And, and uh, I guess maybe just having a little bit more of an education, there may be things I'd want to revisit. Yeah. And yeah, I wouldn't want to take a trip specifically, but if we were in the neck of the woods. I'd, I'd <laughs> stop there on the way if I was training north or south and you know I yeah. wouldn't avoid it. And between 1510 and the 1560s some other interior elements were added including the organ and portions of the altar. Now one thing that I think we're both very excited to maybe touch on was is a statue that was added in 1562 which is the statue of St. Bartholomew. Some things say that it's a St. Bartholomew flayed, and some say that it's St. Bartholomew holding his skin or skinned Bartholomew, several mm -hmm. different versions of the name. There was actually not a placard or anything there. When we were there, we looked no. all over actually for it because we were both so taken back by this sculpture. Um, because we didn't do a, a guided tour. <clears throat> we just lined up to get into the cathedral uh, early in the morning. We had bought our tickets and we kind of did a self-guided tour thing. You kind of, around the perimeter, I guess, of the church is kind of the pathway I remember us walking and they have tons of things you can look at and read about and, and statues. But so we're kind of just making our way through and you know it's like super quiet and then all of a sudden we kind of see this statue and it just kind of like i like like paused pausing in our tracks almost because yeah yeah we're like what is this it's it makes you think like what am i looking at in the first place and then yeah and then for there to be really no information on it i mean i just and there's just so many different angles to look at this statue from as well. Right. And there's almost a like an alien-like quality to his head and face and and how skinny he looks. So when we walked up to it, I'm like, what is this alien? Or like, like who is this supposed to be? Yeah. yeah. And then as we kind of, because you're able to walk mostly, not 
you know, completely around. I think it was like backed up towards a wall. You couldn't walk around the backside, but you can see 360 mm -hmm. degrees of the statue. Yeah. And as you begin to walk around, what looked like a cloak. Or like some sort of robe or sheet wrapped around this. Slowly you begin to notice like, oh, those are, that's a foot. And there's you a start seeing muscle face and, and it, it was really kind of a full, it was a whole experience taking in this sculpture and being able to be so close to it, not, you know, like something like the Pieta, the Vatican, where it's behind a big piece of glass. You can't really get up there to right, see the muscle from... and the, the fibers and the veins. It's so vascular. Right. Not seeing it from a distance. And yeah, the fact that there wasn't much information, like who sculpted it, because um, it's it's beautifully executed. But then I also it also made me think of the time when this would have been made to have that kind of detail in the human anatomy. I think is impressive as well. Very impressive, and one thing actually that kind of to touch on that is that this statue to the artist who created it named Marco Diagrate, it was an exercise for him in anatomy and the structure of the human body. So only a few, not going to say a few years, but not that long prior to him sculpting this, the first real study of anatomy in the human body was done and published in Venice, actually. Oh, wow. So he was really interested in this Marco Diagrate, and he, it wasn't the only depiction of St. Bartholomew hmm. that he had done. The story of St. Barth like Bartholomew, why he's depicted like this, is he was one of Christ's 12 apostles, and he was executed for his Christian faith. He was skinned alive, and he carries his skin like a drape over his shoulder, wrapping it around his body. And that's a reference to the torture that was inflicted upon him. And yeah, it just, it's one of those things you look at and it just makes your hair on the, your skin stand up for, you know, it gives you goosebumps. That's what I'm trying to say. It really makes me think of like the body works exhibits, yep. you know, yep. but the face is still a face. It's the face isn't as anatomical. Like it's still a, it has skin. It like, yeah. And at the feet of the sculpture, there's an inscription that says, non me praxiteles sed Marcus finits a gratis, which means I fear this statue won't be attributed to me, but Praxiteles, who is one of the most skilled and famous sculptures from Athens. So that's a bit of a brag. Mm. I feel like I've done such a good job with this statue that people won't even believe it's me. They're going to think that it was done so, by the greatest sculptor in Athens. So I'm going to really have to make a way to claim my work here. <laughs> and then they don't even put his name near it. we got to yeah. Google it after. And two years after this statue was added to the church which i think for me like none of the other statues really even when i look back at interior statues when i look back at our photos there was nothing that caught my attention like this and you know like it definitely sounds shallow now but there are so many statues that you you know you can't really appreciate them all we 
you, you're not going to notice them all. So, you know, and they're everywhere. Yeah. Like, they are... We Everywhere. spent almost an hour our first evening there just in the courtyard, looking the at the outside, outside of the yes. church, looking at the gallery, like just just yeah. taking in all of the details when there was no crowds. And, and yeah, just everywhere where we were walking along on the inside of the church where they have these little exhibits you can read about, there are statues above you and they're looking down at you. Yeah, but nothing re nothing grabs your attention like this uh, St. Bartholomew statue. Two years after the statue was added, Carlo Borromeo ascends to the throne. He comes into power and has all of the lay monuments removed. Everything that was there up until that point, essentially, other than this statue and a handful of others, even tombs were brought to an undisclosed location. Just <laughs> see ya. Said, Pack it up. Oh man. He then appointed Pellegrino Pellegrini as a chief engineer in 1571. And together, Pellegrini and Borromeo were shooting for a new Renaissance appearance to the cathedral that would subdue this French Gothic style that was previously introduced into the design and highlight a more Italian nature. So Pellegrini designed a Roman one with columns, obelisks, and a large tympanum, which is a semicircular relief statue seen over the doorways. So like above the doorway, and then there's like a depiction in it. So they're just like, we got to build it better. We got to make yeah. it. We Italians do it better. <laughs> but this design was never actually carried out. And they spent oh, okay. like years designing it. That time was lost again. More delay. Mm. In the 17th century, Federico Borromeo had the foundations of a new facade laid. And between 1649 and 1745, three new designs for the facade were presented. But again, not completed. <laughs> In 1762, what I thought was probably in the top three most impressive things about this cathedral, the Madonnina's spire was erected at the top of the cathedral. That's still there today, and you can go up on top of the roof to see it, which we did. And that, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's the only like gold-painted statue? At this, yes. Yeah, at, right, at, at the uh, Duomo. As far my memory agrees right, with you like on the, that. Yeah, Madonna is, and it's also the highest Correct. in in the center. It's 108.5 meters tall. Not the Madonna, the spire. The spire was designed by a man named Carlo Pellicani, and the statue was designed by Giuseppe Perego. Because Milan can have a pretty foggy climate. The Milanese consider it a fair weather day when the Madonnina is visible from the distance because it's often covered in the mist. All right. Weather. That's, get your weather forecast. <laughs> from the church. If you go, I highly recommend going up onto the roof. Uh, for me, I thought it was kind of scary. I think that my footwear, don't wear anything with a heel. Like I didn't wear heels, it was a booted heel, but the, I was worried that I was going to lose my footing and somehow tumble off the roof. <laughs> I mean, they have it. It's, know, it's, it's safe. Like You're not. Yeah. yeah. But it just was, it, it gave me, I don't normally have a fear of heights, but it did give me a little bit of that anxiety. You're not wrong. And, you know, a little bit of a claustrophobic vibe, you know, like the staircases weren't huge. And, you know, there are people going up and people going down. It's not like 
they had one staircase. It's, yeah. It was a church. They didn't plan on it being a you know, tourist, tourist attraction. attraction one day and a church. And, you know, there are some people that are slower than others. But that is just good advice in general. Walking, wear good footwear. <laughs> and buy your tickets for that in advance. There were a lot of people we saw that were waiting in line to purchase tickets that were there still waiting in line to purchase tickets when we came back down. There are two ways to get up to the top, and I will talk about that later, about visiting it today, but um, you can take a lift. There are stairs that you will still have to navigate once you get up to the top if you want to get to the full open area, right? Kind of at the bottom of that Madonina's spire, but you don't have to walk up all of the steps like most churches. There at least is, it's partially lift. And on May 20th, 1805, Napoleon Bonaparte was about to be crowned the king of Italy, and he ordered the facade to be finished by Pelicani. So he came in, was like, we got to get this stuff done. Because that was actually where he was count, count, crowned king. Was that the Duomo? Did not know that. He assured that all of the expenses for the facade would be covered by the French treasury, but it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> but at least the cathedral's facade was finally finished. I mean, I didn't read anything about Milan going into financial ruin because of this. <clears throat> but all right, it's, it's finished. It's done. And as a form of thanks, a statue of Napoleon was placed at the top of one of the spires. I wonder whose idea that was. <laughs> The last details of the cathedral, uh, particularly a final gate, was inaugurated on January 6, 1965, which was considered the end of construction. This took a long ass time. 600 plus years? Yeah. The Allied bombing of Milan in World War II definitely didn't help. It was damaged but quickly repaired. And it actually ended up becoming a place of solace for local residents. It also doesn't help that there was, you know, a plague and almost 80 different architects and engineers that worked on it over time. Yeah, it's a lot of... It's a lot of turnover. Yeah. A lot of hands making that gumbo. So what will you see if you visit the Duomo today? Just from the outside, when you get to the piazza... Looking at the basilica, it's a lot to take in. Yes. The cathedral stands at 354 feet tall, and it has a capacity of 40,000 people, which is like some stadiums. Yeah, it is. It's massive. Like, not just height-wise, but... Yeah. Yeah. And there are more statues on the facade of this church than any other Gothic cathedral. There are 3,400, I almost said 1,000, statues on the exterior, 135 gargoyles and 700 figures. And she counted those herself. I did, one by one, documented them. And they have, like, not, we were able to kind of figure out what some of the stories were, which right, was cool, the, yeah. that I like, they were all, you know, stories or people, characters. From the yeah, Bible. Like biblical stories or, yeah, people, saints. I think some of them yeah. might have even been the sins. It was... If it's in the Bible, it's uh, 
it's on that church. It's a lot. It's a lot to to look at. When you enter the church, as we said, it's so grand. It's a full sensory experience. And what's kind of interesting about it and um, is you walk in and you're able to look up so high, but it's not... For example, you walk in and you see the Sistine Chapel and it's you're like whoa it's so pretty and gorgeous but there it's just like it's blank it's just a building but you're like and then I just remember looking at the pillars and the columns and I'm just thinking like how many people could hold hands and like still wouldn't be able to fully wrap around one of the columns it's also quite dark and cold kind of in comparison to Mm -hmm. other churches that we've visited in Italy right it's not super lit up there's not that like the you know more ornate marble it's darker marbles um there's still some of that i don't i don't remember the name of that reddish purple Mm. i can't remember the name of it the one that's in the um pantheon but you know you can there's still some of that in there but it's not like like St. Peter's Basilica that's got the gold and the, right. the Everything more just cream blue. colored marbles and it's so lit up and and opulent feeling where this really kind of reflects the the somberness of almost its story of conception or like uh, you know like yeah it's a place to go and worship Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, it's not, it, this might not be the best words, but in a nutshell, like it's not flashy. Yeah. Um, you know, like, yeah, in St. Peter's Basilica, everything is, you know, gold and painted and, and, and just beautiful, you know, and not to say that the, this Duomo isn't, but just in a totally different way. I also feel like because of how it has that more gloomier feel, the the impending doom that Catholicism kind of preaches yeah. is at the forefront of this church. Not like I know you haven't been there yet, but you've seen my pictures of the Sagrada Familia in Spain. Going into that church feels more hopeful and, you know, you go in there and it's, it's still, it's, it's grand and it's beautiful. And there are so many sculptures similar to, I mean, not stylistically, but you know, just the, the contrast of it, but you go in and it's, it's bright and, and happy and it's just a completely different did you say it feels heavenly almost? Almost. Mm. There is kind of like a state of euphoria with the the rainbow lights coming in from the windows and you mm-hmm. know, it's just, you look up and it almost looks like you're in a like trees, like the canopy of beautiful white marble trees above you and you almost feel like you it's not real. Yeah, it just feels more hopeful than mm. sad. That's just, yeah. you know, and in the Duomo in Florence, you look up at the top and there's all the demons painted on the ceilings when you're walking up to go up to the mm, right. the the dome. 
sending you a strong message. Yeah, but it's still brighter in there. Like, it doesn't have that same coldness. Yeah, I agree. I might be struggling to find the words here, but I, I think you're right. And one thing I strongly remember is the smell mm-hmm. of the incense or candles of just hundreds of years of that burning inside the building. And um, it's, yeah, it's just, it's not really lit up. And um, not to mention how there's so many paintings that kind of, I mean, there's rows and rows and rows of pews. And I guess, I don't know if they'd be kind of on the outside perimeter of the pews where the just dozens and dozens of paintings. Mm-hmm. And, and it's just, it's so big, but yeah, it's just, it does have a gloomy feel to it. And when you enter the church, like Russ was kind of saying, it consists of a nave with four side aisles crossed by a transept and an apse. And in the side aisles there are works of art displayed on stands and hanging from the ceiling along with all the many sculptures and plaques that we've talked about the naves are divided by 40 massive pillars they're 80 feet high that is huge and it really kind of is i guess humbling might be the word when you're standing at the foot of those columns thinking of how did they get them here without the modern day equipment right that was one of the cool things about the duomo in florence kind of when you're walking up the steps to get to the roof and you can see some of the old equipment that right they have a little display of um some of the scaffolding or some of the tools and And like that crane thing that uh, brunelleschi designed right so i don't know if it was I guess it was ox, right? They had the, then they dedicated a statue to the ox because they would, I don't know what you would technically call it, but it would be a lift. It's like a geared kind of turnstile thing. call it like a worm drive. So rather than having to reverse the direction of the sheep, they drop this gear on top of it, not sheep, the oxen, and they can keep pushing it the same way, but yet it just reverses the direction so it can lower and raise the lift. Like a dumb leader. And, um, yeah, that was kind of neat. Like, a lot of people are, are, are like, <laughs> passing by that. And I'm like, sir, wait, let's check, let's check this out. Another cool thing, when you first walk into the cathedral, there's a sundial on the floor, which we didn't notice until we were actually leaving. And the light shines through the window of the altar and illuminates the sundial, which is cool. It would be cool to see that, too, if you're able to time that out. Yeah. That's all I've got for you for the history of the Duomo today. If you're planning a visit, tickets can be purchased online. There are a few options. If you just wanted to see the cathedral, it's five euros and the rooftop are 10 euros for the stairs, 14 euros for the lift. If you're going to go onto the roof, you might as well get the Duomo pass for 15 euros for the stairs, 20 euros for the lift. It also allows you access to the Church of San Gotardo and the Duomo Museum at the Palazzo Real. Just a side note, this will probably sound like blasphemy to some people, especially anyone from Europe, but the Starbucks reserve store that's really close to the Duomo is like pretty cool. Okay, so 
I don't know if we were hung hung over, over. but you know it's like <laughs> I wanna I'm I'm hung over still I drunk just, but you know you're like I'm in Italy like I'm not gonna go to friggin Starbucks so we didn't and you went to like a local place and it was I don't know we went into one of those touristy places and it was like eh. But then finally we went into that Starbucks, I don't know, the next day or, and it is like, it's like the it's Willy Wonka. Willy Wonka's of, chocolate factory yeah, for coffee. coffee. Yeah. <laughs> it's so cool. And even if you don't stay to drink the coffee, which I, I, in North America, Starbucks coffee can tend to taste a little burnt, in my opinion. But I didn't find that here. It could have been also just my hangover really needed a latte at the time. Also but... a possibility. It was <laughs> it... just cool to check out, though, if you're, you know, a yeah. Starbucks hater. But... Well, they have these tubes that send the beans, like, to get roasted. You, like, see them shooting up over your head. And there's, like, these tickers, almost like an old-timey, like, train station where the... Like destination would kind of roll yeah, up on like those a, old ticker displays. It's almost displays like a and... conveyor belt meets mousetrap, but it's, for coffee. It's really cool. And I mean, not to Matt, like they have pretty good croissants. Yeah, the ham and cheese croissants. They don't have those at Starbucks here. But part of the reason why we ended up actually going in is, I this could have been a a time of year thing. We were there around New Year's. I know in some places, like we found this in Florence, a few of the restaurants that I wanted to go back to that I had been my previous trip there um, weren't open they were just closed for the holidays so this that that could have been part of it but I didn't find as many cafes like quick kind of cafes like in Florence where you walk in and it's almost just a counter like it's only yeah, big enough for you to get bodies. your body in yeah. between the counter and the wall mm -hmm. and you know you get your coffee and your sandwich or whatever to be on your way right. and I didn't really we didn't find that it could have been where we were staying because we were so close to a kind of the tourist center that yeah. maybe there wasn't as many of those but um that was part of the reason it was eight o'clock in the morning and i wanted a ham and cheese croissant and some burnt espresso before we walked to the roof of the duomo and yeah just to add to that um not on the coffee but on the duomo i think if memory serves me correctly the access to go uh to the staircase to climb the building um opens an hour after the inside of the church opens yeah so i think we kind of just we that's we just looked around the inside for like an hour and then hoofed it up top and just like you get some great uh views of the city we also well expected it to be busier just from our experience being i i booked generally for the most part try and book most of our attractions and sightseeing i'll book one thing a day but i do it in advance before we've even left on our trip some of the things you actually need to essentially find out when the tickets are going to be released and book it right away like if you want to see the last summer or last summer last supper what a summer <laughs> Uh, if you want to see the last supper, I literally logged on at the time tickets were being released and we weren't able to get tickets, uh, for the Coliseum in Rome. I 
stayed up several nights because they kept saying that they were going to be released Soon. between this date and this date. So I was waking up at like two, three o'clock in the morning, our time to try and get these specific tour tickets that they only offer like seven of them per hour per day or something. Yeah, it's like a limited tour <laughs> of the Coliseum, but it's like a full tour of the Coliseum. And you knew that that was something I really wanted to do. So we got to go the basement and we got to go up uh, multiple floors where, um, like general admission, I think they're only able, well, they don't, they're not able to go down below, but I think they're only able to go up to the, the third yeah. section. But the point of that is, um, you know, if you book in advance, sometimes it's not as easy to gauge what the crowd situation is going to be like. I always like to book as basically the first or one of the first entry times that I can get, you get first access to the paintings and the sculptures. There's not always somebody in front of you with a camera iPad. or an iPad standing in front of you <laughs> trying to take a picture of all the art. You can just enjoy and experience it. And in our situation, because when we had got there, the piazza was packed with people pretty much every day and night while we were yeah. there. And there was also a, a Christmas fair like Christmas markets lining mm -hmm. the sides of the, then, the right there was New Year's yeah the, there was tons of stuff going they on had a, a New Year's Eve concert or whatever yeah so I expected that we would get to because we went on New Year's Day also they you'll want to check when mass is when you're booking tickets they mm -hmm. don't like book or they won't do tours during mass so if you're only there for a limited number of days and you know that going into or on top of the Duomo, I believe they still allow roof access. I think you're right. Yeah. During mass. But, you know, if it's really important to you to go and it's not available on Wednesday morning, then make sure that Wednesday morning isn't the time that you allot for yourself to go there. Otherwise, you're going to get there and be pretty disappointed. They were preparing for a mass when we were there, so we got the only morning slot essentially when we went and they had back-to-back -back daily mass on new year's mm -hmm. and we i think we lucked out i i wanted to make sure we were one of the first ones in line and which we were because i mean if you could potentially be waiting in line for a while even if you have a ticket and you know i really wanted to see it so <laughs> and our experience everywhere else in milan was so busy so mm -hmm. everywhere we went was so busy we expected to get there and almost want to just blow through it but it was nice it was just us and a private tour and maybe one or two like other couples people yeah but because we had to wait until we were able to access the roof we just sat sat in the pews for a while and kind of yeah said it oh i remember i said a prayer i just yeah. You know, you think about what it might have been like to attend and just not rush yourself through it. Yeah. So it's easy to do. There's so much to see, so much to do. I always try and remind myself that I can always go back. It may not be for five or ten years, but, you know, if I can always go back. It's. That's, you know, you mentioned the thing about people bringing, like, their cameras out or their iPads out to take a picture of a painting or, or a sculpture and 
like on one end like I get it but you know you also mentioned too like you could go to the museums or whatever's website and you can get a better picture on yeah. there but I think one thing I think like wow would of course I don't remember every renaissance painting I've looked at I remember bits and pieces of some and details of some but I think that's just like some of the beauty of it like you know like that's originally how it was meant to be looked at you know you walk by a painting and you look at it and like you notice some things it makes you feel a certain way and you know like not people running up to it taking a picture of it then taking a picture of the plaque and then literally walking onto the next one without without actually like visualizing the actual painting just like glance glance boom mm -hmm. so yeah you can always go back yeah and just one last thing i think before we wrap it up when we were in milan we stayed on the cusp of the scala and brera districts i'd say the walkability there was excellent yeah we ate in the brera district pretty much every night except one we ate at the Galleria, which was surprisingly good, actually, and not crazy expensive. I don't remember why yeah. we ended up choosing to eat there. Because I remember specifically saying, like, you know, we're not going to eat here because it's so close. It's probably going to be garbage food. And the only way that they stay open it's is because like they're in a tourist area. Yeah. I normally like to go a little more off the beaten path. Yeah, I got a pizza from there that was actually one of the better pizzas on the whole Italy trip because I had pizza almost every day on our honeymoon. So I, I had, had to test them all. Arabiata that was so good and they had this chili paste sauce that I ended up buying like three jars of it to bring home with me. Mm -hmm. It's so good. Was I was good surprised too. I think it yeah. was called and I mean, this is Spanish, so it probably wasn't, but El, El Gato Rosso. El Gato something. Yeah. yeah. And if I were to go back, I'd probably want to stay in that same neighborhood. Probably not at the same hotel. I mean, we got a good deal. The room was fine. Yeah, nothing wrong with the hotel. Just I mean, I wouldn't go back to the hotel because I broke something and we oh, had to right. super glue it. I had a little too many vinos and knocked a painting off the wall and broke the frame and then b mad rush before we left to find a store that was open on a holiday to get a thing of Italian super glue. Fix that bad boy right up. Yeah, good as new. If we were to go back, I would maybe consider the Navili district, which I had looked at before, but the thing about that, that kind of, so like the Navili district is, at the time that I was looking, was supposed to be the up and coming, more boutique hotels, better restaurants and bars, like a little trendier of a neighborhood, less touristy. But the one day we walked from there, it felt very long. And I'm all about walkability on vacation. I don't like to have to get onto some sort of transit every single time I leave the hotel. Burning up your time. Mm -hmm. It's beautiful. Transit, yeah. In that Navili district, there are like the canals. Remember walking along the canals with all the you know Christmas lights and that vibe, but it kind of smelled. It did have a, yeah, there's a little funk in the air. Yeah, I mean, yeah. and that's that's no different than Amsterdam. It's a semi-stagnant waterway in an old city. But yeah, I think the Brera district, there was great food. It was cute. You know, it had the modern amenities, but... And for, for the most part, like, 
where you wanted to go, we were nearby. Mm-hmm. The only other area that we didn't, kind of in the main central district of Milan, that we didn't get the chance to explore, but I would kind of like to if we went back, are the Fiera and City Life district, which is where Italy was. We had mm. a bad experience with that Italy. I mean, I love the Italy in, yeah. in New York. I don't think I would go back to the Italy in Milan. No. It just didn't work out our way in any sense. No. There's also a building there, and I can't off the top of my head. I should have written it down, remember it. But they have a lookout that you can go. I almost want to say it's a, the me. It's a bank, I think, at the City Life we went to the um, area that it's in, you know, the... It's a very tall building and there's a lookout and you can see the Dolomites and a beautiful view of I the city. I can't think of the name of it, but... We weren't able to go. It's only open on a couple days of the week. It wasn't open when we were there, but that that would be something to, to look into also. And we were... Before we go, do you remember the best thing you ate in Milan? Best thing I ate in Milan? That's tough. Um, well, I mean, I don't, I feel like pizza is such a cop-out answer, but I mean, you know me, like pizza is my number one. I grew up, I come from a pizza family. Uh, <laughs> seriously, like at least once a week, usually twice. So many of your guys' conversations about are about pizza. New pizza places. Do you remember this pizza place? She's talking about my parents. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you know hey my parents are new yorkers and i was i was born in new york so like hey i know i know a thing or two about pizza um <laughs> um i i just the pot like the pot pasta almost everywhere is so good it's it's, it's fresh it's i can't say i can't say the number one thing no mine would probably have to be of a truffle fonduta i had at matza i was almost gonna say just that dinner in general because just like fresh mozzarella as my <laughs> parents would say um and just that i think yeah the the, the fonduta might do it just because that's so, it's like you can't get that everywhere you know there was like thick cuts of black truffle carpaccio layered on top of just a beautiful knot of buffalo mozzarella cheese. Oh, it was so good. So good. And I'd actually to have to say, for sure, and it's like a chain. There's one in it's... the UK too, I'm pretty sure. Oh, really? But yeah, I would definitely go back there and I would go back to the Gatto Rosso. I mean, that was oh, yeah. that's probably my second well, I favorite. I think we went there twice. We went there twice, yeah. We went we went the one day and we were impressed and we went back for a dinner. It wasn't super busy. It was a little bit later. We had great service and then that's when that's you when I bought got the, the paste, yeah. I didn't think we were there for that many nights because I remember we went to that other place where we dined outside. It might have been like we were having trouble, you know, like finding, finding a place somewhere. to go and we were like, well, let's just go back there. Kind of thing yeah well it was good really good service go definitely not what i would expect like in my experience in florence around the duomo there there's a lot of restaurants i've eaten at two of the restaurants that are in the duomo square and then even in the uh the piazza signoria where all the mock statues mm. are outside i think that's oh, the piazza okay. signoria i've eaten at two of the restaurants in that area also and one of 
the four restaurants in these areas was good. Decent. Yeah. Not even good. Just like just, you know, Kitty. it's all right. Yeah. And expensive. Always. Pricey, yeah. Yeah. And what's something you tell someone visiting Milan that they must see and that they should stay away from? What's your, your rose and your thorn or whatever? Okay. Must see. Well, I think you have to see the Duomo. At least look, walk by because you can't help but notice it. <laughs> but I, I would highly recommend that if I could plan out a morning for you, you go to the Starbucks reserve we had mentioned. You get yourself, you know, a little bite to eat, a cup of coffee, head down there, walk around the inside of the church for an hour, and then climb to the top. And uh, be sure to bring a camera or have your phone ready. Um, yeah, that's, that's something you can't miss. And if you're able to, if you have the time and there's not hundreds of people in your way. Try to find the bull, the um, the bull for good luck. The bull walls. Because, uh, I don't know, might have worked in our case. Yeah, well. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, one thing to be aware of is the taxi drivers. Because there was a little issue, not like it was really an issue, because I didn't want to make it an issue, and it was more or less just a few dollars, but... Um, our cab ride from the airport to our hotel. It was supposed to be a flat rate, and he tried charging us a different rate, which was like a few dollars more. Yeah, I think it was supposed to be like 19 euro 50 or something for the cab ride from the airport to our hotel to the city. Yes. Yeah, and he charged rate. us like 22. What the meter was yeah, and, 22. You know, I don't know. I'm like, whatever tax, whatever. So I'm like, you know what, buddy? Like, you just got yourself less of a tip. Well, that was I'm, his tip. Because, like, I didn't... Yeah, like, he this maybe is got the amount 50 you're, euro, you know, like, like this cents, is the, but... This is the amount you're getting, like, whatever. And I don't know if it was also... The, not like it's anything bad, um, but just with, like, jet lag and timing and everything like that. And it's not like North America where you could hit, like, a 24-hour drive-through when you get in or something like that. So, like... When we first landed in Italy, it was like, it was it was tough for us to find a bite to eat, you know, and it was like after traveling a lot. So maybe on your next, like your layover. Don't expect to land and be able to find yourself a good plate of pasta at 11 o'clock because right. at certain times of the year, places won't still be open. In the summer, chances are you'll find a somewhere that you can go eat still in late December. Mm -hmm. I, you know, there's a lot more limited access on what you can get and when i actually um, found that like all of our taxi experiences in milan were not good yeah we're our, we're our ride to the train was bad our ride to the stupid prada foundation was bad yeah that's why we walked back we walked back because it would have taken 40 minutes for them to send a yeah. taxi out to pick us up from there so we walked from the prada foundation through the navili district it took us over easily over an hour and a half on New Year's Eve when we had a nice dinner planned and like bottles of wine at our hotel room that we had bought in anticipation of New Year's Eve on our honeymoon, like ringing in the new year yeah. as a new and married here, couple. Here we are trying to hoof it. Miserably hoofing it through the stinky 
streets, not really knowing where we are. Me, a diabetic who's like trying to walk and shove down Austrian-made candy down my mouth <laughs> to keep my blood sugar from going down too much. But we were able to find a, I don't remember what the more um, medieval, kind of a little more south, in between the Navili district and the, and kind of the center of town, but it's a little bit more medieval vibe. And we found that little pizza place where they have it's the- kind of like you pick a slice It was like thing. Roman style pizza where it's almost more like a focaccia bread with lots mm -hmm. of toppings and sauce. Squares. And yeah, they cut it into squares for you. And that was our savior. It really turned around our mood, took away the hangries. Yeah. We were happy again, walking and, back. And I think the fact that it was, it, it was quick, convenient. Also, we had a place, like a table to sit down, like we were just walking for, for a little bit. And I think it was a little bit better than we maybe had planned it, it was going to be. You know, like, I'm, I'm going in there thinking this is going to be Milan Sabaros. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I also, I think, you know, after the disappointment I had, and we might, we'll cover the Prada Foundation. I'll talk about Prada as a house in a different episode. But I was so excited to go there and to go to the Wes Anderson restaurant, bar, cafe thing and had such a miserably disappointing time that I'm actually really surprised that my mood turned around so quickly. And you know, I, I built this up in my head. I'm so excited to go. I can't wait to get there. One you of know? the reasons why we, were, why, uh, we stayed as long in, in Milan was so did, that right? we could go there. Like we spent an extra day in Milan so that I could go to the Prada Foundation and was so severely disappointed. I, I will have to say that that would be my thorn. I just that was the thorn for yeah. me too. I, I, and Italy, both of them. Yeah, we were but, trying to get a bite to eat, and they like basically refused that service. All of the restaurants, even though like they were still open. Yeah, they told us that all of the restaurants were closed. Which I mean, maybe they were closing, but like. But you but couldn't like, even get like it was three forty-five in the afternoon, and you couldn't get a sandwich, like at the Italy in the Italy's in North America. They have like this the sandwich bar, and like there's the quick pasta station or the pizza state. Like there's all these different you know, like, rest. There's sit down restaurants and quick eat restaurants, and I didn't find the quick eat no. ones when we were there. So yeah, that was. But right, it's like here we are trying to spend our money, and you guys are like, "Oh no, we're not gonna but serve you." Where I just, you know, I'm feeling like a lot of other parts in well the world, uh, but especially in like Rome, for example, they're you know they. I almost feel like there's not enough they can do for you. Like yeah. they want, you know, like that's how they make their living. And right? Florence, from... this is like the, you'll be walking down the street and somebody will come up and grab your arm and just shove a menu essentially in your face in a friendly way. Like it's not aggressive, mm -hmm. but I mean. It's still really not welcome, but like, well, you know. It but it's also it their is. culture too. That, that's. That's the thing too, and it, you know, yeah, they shove you the menu, but it's not like I don't it's not like, like they're trying to grab you by the shoulder mm -hmm. in the restaurant. Look, I don't love being touched on a good day under right circumstances by people that right I know. People. Yeah, so having a stranger come up to me and like you know put his arm around my shoulders to show me a menu generally isn't something. Oh God, especially when we were there in August in Rome, and you know, there's 
the hosts are standing outside, like sweating through their shirts, oh, and you're gonna come put your stinky wet armpit up jacket. over my arm and my face. It it, I mean, they're just doing their job. They're just trying to be nice. It's it's not. Um, if it happened to me in New York, I'd be like, get the fuck off of me. Don't touch me. But for some reason there, it's like, okay. Oh. <laughs> you could just say, no, thank you. Yeah. And it's like, fine. Yeah. Or it's like, oh, okay, yeah, I do want to eat at your restaurant. Thank you. They do that actually in Little Italy in New York too. Some of them. But. Try to usher you in. Manja, manja. Exactly. <laughs> All right, well, that was Milan and the Duomo. I think that might be all, of, all that we have for you today. So thank you for joining us for another episode of Drunken Cultured. I promise that the next episode will be less religious and churchy. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe not. All right. Ciao. Bye. <laughs>